You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online video platform geared towards making you a better hunter. Watch instructional videos taught by hunting experts like Remy Warren, Randy Newberg, and Corey Jacobson. After the hunt, learn how to prepare your harvest from world-class wild game chefs like Hank Shaw and Jamie Tagan. Whether it's your first year hunting or you grew up doing it, Outdoor Class will take your skills up a notch. Use code EMPIRE20 at checkout to save 20% off. Visit OutdoorClass.com to learn more. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited. We got Perry Batten back from Drury Outdoors. But before we get Perry on the line, I want to talk really quick about some of my plans this year. I made a couple decisions this year to include a few more consultants in this. We've got a great group of guys. Perry's one of them. I'm happy he's on this podcast contributing a great bit of knowledge and, and just a just a good all-around kind of guy. But I want to have some diverse perspectives. And we're going to look uh, with two more consultants probably this year that are going to come into this podcast. One I've wanted to get on here. Um, I'm also going to pull in a, another person that has some expertise in managing kind of open grounds and how to you know convert open grounds. I do a lot of field conversions. And I think this person will give some perspective on that. Uh, there's some science-based aspects to his approach. Um, he's more on the science academia side. And then we have another consultant likely coming in from, uh, we'll say, the Texas area. So I'm kind of excited for that. So I want to give a, a little bit of foreshadowing in the future. So we'll have some new people on this. But our staple guys will stay on this. Jake, myself, you know, Todd, Rocky, you know, Steve, et cetera. So the guys that have been on this podcast that we've really enjoyed. So let me get Perry on the line. Perry, what's up, buddy? How's it going, man? Good, good. Um, so, you know, you're in the middle of uh, doe patrol right now, correct? What are, you, what are you doing? You're still hunting. Yeah, yeah. We got, we got a few muzzleloader tags left for bucks. Uh, Wade shot one, let's see, three evenings ago. Big nine-and-a-half-year-old eight-pointer. Um, he's never been anything but that, so we, uh, we finally took him out. But, uh, yeah, we're shooting a bunch of does. We got, we always have a quota. We like to sit down and talk about each farm and where we had trouble growing food plots or where we're seeing too many deer. And we kind of come up with a number and say, okay, we need to kill 10 off this farm or five here, you know, whatever the numbers may be. But, uh, right now we're currently sitting at 55 shot 
and I think our goal is 90. So we uh, we got some work still to do, but it's it's been uh, it's been fun, but it's been work as well. I think so. next uh, next year, if you wanna if you you want a shooter like myself, I'll I'll come out and help you clean up. Um, yeah. Well, let me let me ask you about your decision making, and I think a lot of people maybe in the same boat as you and we've had consultants on here or guests on here that have had similar situations. Can you kind of walk us through maybe some of your thought process, maybe a partic- pick a particular farm uh, and maybe explain the number side of things. And, and it could be purely based on observation. So I'm interested yeah. to hear your thoughts. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and we look at this through the season, we do not typically shoot our does early. We like to wait until we see, if you will, all numbers. Um, and we kind of put some observation data together, you know, especially on our Missouri farms, we write it all down per sit per spot bucks, those fawns. And, uh, in Iowa, we do that as well. We don't necessarily write it down down there. We're in a doe program up here. We're, uh, just buying County allotted permits. Um, but, uh, we sit down and kind of look at what our doe and buck ratio is and uh and base our numbers off that and also you know food plot pressure you can tell a lot um you know if you most of our farms we've got at least two to three acres of food and and if you can't grow that you you know something's wrong you know especially if your you know if your rain's good and everything was correct for the year you know we always have very phenomenal food plots here in iowa and missouri we're blessed to have good dirt to grow it in and so when we don't grow them, it's either a weather issue or it's a deer pressure issue. And this, this year we had a couple farms that were some deer pressure issues. And unfortunately we don't have the food now late because they ate it all early to, to harvest those numbers. So that's kind of how we determine how many we're going to shoot. Look at the numbers, your buck to doe ratios, and also just how much overall pressure the farm's getting as far as food. And that's not just, you know, that doesn't have to be your food plot. That could be, you might walk through the woods and all your natural browse four foot up is gone. Well, that's deer pressure. So, um, once we sit down and figure those numbers out, we, uh, we go buy the tags allotted where we need them and, and start shooting. So is there, you know, and I think that's good consideration. You're looking at your pressure, uh, probably your exclusion cages or just your natural browse in the, in the woodlots or again, in your food plots. And then in concert with that, maybe you're looking at the localized area to figure out, you know, what others are doing in, in consideration of that, because I'm sure those around you are either managing or not managing their forest slash their food plots or their, you know, leftover agriculture areas that may have not be harvested. Is that all kind of taken in, into consideration with your final decision? Correct. We have a lot of neighbors that manage for big deer as well as we do and plant food, but we have very few that harvest their doe numbers. Okay. Um, we have some that say they shoot five, but that you're not, you're not doing any, uh, any work per se. I mean, the five helps, not everything helps, but sure. you know, until you start really getting the numbers down, you know, you don't do anything. You're just scratching the surface. So we do, in my opinion, we shoot a lot of does off the neighbors and surrounding areas come late season because we have the food, but they're not going to shoot them either. So we're feeding a lot of mouths and, and we have to do our part in order to, uh, you know, control the resource. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think th- some people are probably going to ask the next question is what is the ideal 
we'll say male to female ratio in in your environments what do you, what do you what do you perceive as probably the the ideal state based on the numbers that you're dealing with i would say we get them down to like a three to one okay i mean to get them past that it's it just it's hard it's hard it's really hard yeah. i mean ideally you'd love everything to be two to one and your herd be perfectly balanced and everything be healthy but man we you know shooting 90 does a year between wade myself and mark it's it is a pile of work. I mean, yep. Wade shot six last night. I shot five. We helped each other drag and gut and load. And, but I mean, it's a, it's a process. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll, okay. I'll put my two cents into this. Um, some of the larger farms that I've worked on, not in your region, of course, but in my region that have healthy deer populations, typical ratios are one to three, one to four. Those are ideal. Now they'll go to the one to one, one to two. You'll hear the Texas people talking about their one to one ratios and you know how that impacts you know, basically just the, the the overarching issues that result the one-on-one ratios is a lot different than the issues that we're dealing with here. We're, the numbers and managing those larger numbers a deer in some of these areas can be get kind of complicated, but I think those ratios are actually ideal. I think that's that they've put these numbers out there, one to two. It's just unrealistic based on the environments. And, and you said to one point is you're talking about the neighborhood situation and there's little you can do to control trigger methodology, you know, as compared to yours. So, you know, that's yeah, kind of my I, thought. We certainly have some farms that are more probably the one to four. And, and then I think we certainly have some farms that we get down to that, that one to three range. And, and, uh, I mean, we do very well every year. Yeah. Um, they've done very well every year before I even worked here, you know, having those numbers and, and so it, it works out well. Can you, uh, I think some people would probably kind of ask themselves a question as you're doing observation log data, how do you translate that number? So like if you're hitting, you're sitting in an observation area or, or maybe you're observing and hunting all in the same moment you're looking across the landscape and trying to assess at least in that, that microcosm or that area that you're looking, the numbers, are you trying to have other observation at the same time and say, okay, this side of the farm we're we're anticipating, we saw 70% of the deer and you know, this is kind of what the rough numbers might be on the farm on a daily basis. So we need to look, are you doing any of those kind of calculations? Cause I think some people might go down that road. For sure. Like, if we have a farm that we observe, um, let's go down to our Missouri stuff because we do it in a lot more detail down there for the program. Um, if we sit on a farm, call it 80 acres, that farm might have two food plots and two blinds or two stand locations. And so when we, we break it down even farther over all of our farms because we observe everything throughout the season. We observe while we hunt. Those are the numbers we write down. But then, you know, if we think we need to break it down per farm, we'll just go back to the list and say, okay, this blind and this blind are on the same 120 acres. And then, you know, kind of pull out those data numbers and, you know, specifically dive into that farm itself and the data to it, you know, exclusively if, if it needs to be done. Do you have any idea roughly, and I've done some surveys and studies at looking at uh, through through drone imagery, um, looking at numbers uh, on, a, on a scale basis. Do you have any idea what your deer per square mile may be in the Missouri farms that you're working on right now, roughly? Uh, I don't. That'd be a question for Kevin, who we work with at MDC. Okay. Um, I'm sure I'm sure he's got that number pretty knocked down, but uh, we do not. I mean, we focus 
um, strictly on our farms and, and we work with the neighbors as well um, on their stuff. And we all chat about numbers and what we feel we need tag wise to get to our goals or whether we say, Hey, this farm's looking great. We don't need to shoot it, you know? And so we work with, it's, uh, it's a large number of acres. It's in the thousands for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would suspect, and this is, this is not me knowing exactly, but you're, I'm assuming your numbers per square mile are over 50 deer uh, per square mile. I, I would assume you're, you're over those numbers. Oh yeah, I would. Yeah. I would do so. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then so I would ask everybody to start to look at your harvest data in your area that's publicized by your local DNR, your your NCON resources, and kind of figure out kind of what those numbers might be. Assume, you know, a twenty or thirty take twenty or thirty percent take on an annual basis, and that'll give you kind of a rough idea what your numbers are, and it'll give you kind of a herd check, and then you can get very individualistic and kind of look at your specific area and do some of the drone thermal imagery or drone imagery or just observation data and realize like statistically you may be able to figure out you know kind of a percentage of deer that you're actually observing and and those that you're not seeing kind of like a survey study in some states you can bait and use other means to kind of kind of regulate that and then to really to perry's point is you get a lot of immigration on these properties that are kind of high quality managed well kind of like the jury farms so kudos to you guys all right. Yeah. I mean, I encourage everyone. I get a lot of people that ask me, you know, why we shoot so many does and, and, you know, I say it's all in the numbers. You got to study your numbers. And, and even if the guy out there owns a 40 or a 400, you know, every time you go hunting throughout the year, maybe you only hunt your farm 10 times in one year, but every time you go, I mean, I highly encourage you to write down how many does you saw, how many fawns and how many bucks. And that, I mean, even if you only saw two deer that night, or maybe you didn't, you know, you saw one, you still write your data down for your farm, wherever you're at in the country. And, uh, and so you have that for years to come. And if you ever have an issue from population standpoint, you can look back and say, okay, what it, what changed through these years that I've got so many more deer or so less deer, you know, either or, but having that data is invaluable. Yeah, I agree. And I think logging it and then comparing it or looking at it uh, weekly or daily and doing averages and comparing those averages a portion of the season. One thing you will learn is you'll kind of learn the immigration percentage and the, the deer when the deer have the most interest on your property, if you're looking at like that type of observation logs, I mean, you can also do it, not even hunting. You can do it on trail camera data, you know, depending on how you have your property set up. So in concert with that, I think it really gives you this kind of big plethora of information that gives you some decision-making and like your quota that you guys got to meet, you know, good luck to you. And you're working obviously with your, your local income resource, which is huge because it allows you to kind of meet the numbers because they realize you're trying to achieve something, you know, far greater than I think a lot of people are kind of on the same page with. I think, I think that's a great opportunity for you. And obviously you guys are pretty well known. So that, that helps. Um, all right, let's dig in. L- l- let me ask you about your hunting season. You, this has probably been your best hunting season ever, right? I mean, you've, you've had a great hunting season. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, I've never killed. I've got, I was blessed to kill four bucks this year and they were all five and a half or older two or two or six and a half could have been older than that. But, uh, I mean, just an amazing season Two in Missouri, two here in Iowa. And, uh, I, I don't know if I'll ever top it. I hope I do, but <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. I think that's, that's awesome. You know, Rocky Burris, who you, you guys are on a podcast before he had a tough season and then he just recovered and he shot a couple, another 
beauty of a buck. So you guys have had pretty stellar seasons. And uh, so it's been nice to follow both of you throughout this season. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for both of you. Let's, let's kind of dig into your season um, or at least your observations when it came to what did or didn't work well. Like, you know, based on your hunting season, you're going to change some things. And most people, you know, sit in their tree stand and thinking to themselves, you know, what, what's going on wrong here, you know, or what is working and what isn't working. And I think we want to talk about what isn't working and what changes you'd like to make based on your observation. Yeah, we had, uh, we had two farms that we, uh, we got last year and, uh, we did them, did them up this year, kind of similar to how they were set up in the past. Um, as far as acre numbers of food, where the blinds are at, and uh, where we have cover for the deer to bed and, and all those things. But uh, looking at the numbers we had on these farms this year, we've, we've got to get some bigger food there, and we definitely got to uh, remove some does and just some population issues in general. But uh, we're going to certainly dive into deer cast this summer and redesign some of these plots, make them larger, maybe a little bit different um, uh, shape and sizes and, uh, really kind of do our homework, if you will, on these two specific spots so that we can maximize our, um, killing there, if you will, our success rate. Cause this year we, we didn't kill a deer off either one of them. We ran out of food early. Um, uh, we were comping with the drought large deer populations on these two farms that we hadn't been controlling in the past. And, uh, so we've definitely got some big changes coming down the pipe for those two farms. Let's break down one of the farms and let's give some specifics on kind of layout and what improvements you think. I know nothing's finalized, right? You got to get back to the drawing board. You know, you and Mark have to meet, right. And Wade have to meet and figure out, okay, what's the plan of action. But from Perry's standpoint, based on his observation, what are your next steps on one of those particular farms? Yeah. Um, we're talking about a 120 acre piece. Uh, it is entirely a CRP farm. So it's, I mean, there's two draws of, of woods on it, but most of it is grass. That's four or five foot tall. It's a very, very successful CRP farm. And so the cover, um, is pretty crazy around it. There is a lot of timber and a lot of cover, north or a lot of cover south and west of it as far as the neighbors goes so there's just a lot a lot of deer density down there i mean it's it's crazy and they travel through there's also you know residents that are there obviously but you can pull deer from from anywhere in this country because it's so vast and so much habitat so i think we're really going to have to pull back and you know, we put in a mobile blind set up there this year and it almost worked good. And our greenfield didn't do the great greatest from the drought standpoint. And then I put some water on it and we had a decent greenfield and then it was gone in two weeks. I mean, they, the deer numbers just, they just smoked it. So we're going to have to pull our blinds out, that blind in particular out, um, and come up with a better strategy for a greenfield, a bigger greenfield. And also we had two and a half acres of corn planted on it and we didn't even have a chance to mow it and they had it eaten while standing. Um, so we're going to have to widen that field out or figure out 
a different spot on the farm that we can carve out in the CRP area and uh, maybe have two different grain fields, maybe have two and a half acres of beans and corn. You know, we've, we haven't sat down and went over that drawing board yet, but that's, that's one of the farms that's on the top of the list from things that have to change and things that did not work. So when it comes to, when you say CRP, is it actually in a program or is it just? Yeah. Okay. Yes. It's in a program. Okay. And then you have some <clears throat> latitude within that program to implement some of these changes, obviously, and you're going to work with, you know, your local resource to make sure that's correct. I think. That's, yeah. yeah. Normally in Iowa, they give you uh, 10% of whatever is enrolled okay. that you, you can uh, food plot for the wildlife. So. I'm interested, Perry, because there's numbers that people throw out all the time. I remember um, through some other resources that I have and, and people, you know, they typically look at the layouts and like I have percentages. Like, for example, on a podcast recently, I was talking about the Woody Browse volume on my, my property and how much I'm uh, employing uh, across it to make sure that they have the right resources at the right time. So that's in like the 30 to 45% range. So Woody resources available to deer at their level, right. As a resource for them to kind of manage and maintain their, their body health over time. Like that's a percentage I come up with, but for food plots, those ranges are all over the place for me. Um, and some properties that I work with that have tons of cover around those percentages could be 10 to 15%. Um, but on average they're two to 5%. That's typically my threshold. Do you guys ever have numbers like that you work with, or is it really deer population based and just the circumstance of what you're working with. Any, any opinions on that topic? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't think we've ever broken it down to a percentage. Um, honestly, per farm, um, say it's an 80 acre chunk and say it only has a lot of it dictates for us. Is it, if we can farm it or not, if we can food plot it, because, you can't food plot side hills or you, you can, but I'm going to tell you, you won't do it for years to come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, we have an 80 acre farm that sits in a heart of cover and has good neighbors. And I mean, we've got a four acre food plot on it, but the bottom in this farm allows us to do it because it's flat, it's good dirt. And, and so I think that determines what we can plant and what we can't plant to those percentages more than um, what's available out there. You know, Yeah, we're going to maximize our acres as much as possible and as much as the farm will allow us to do. And we, and Mark is very particular and I pride him on this and I think it's great. He's very particular on where he puts food plots because of erosion. He hates erosion he doesn't want anything to do with it. And, uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's very good and very smart of him to be that way. Do you have, um, so from the standpoint of percentages, and this is, this is, this is what I was going with is it is all dependent on the specific location and throwing out two to 5% is for me, it's just a range of what people can normally afford. Um, typically again, it depends on the layout, like you just pointed out. Um, and it also depends on the quality of soil, right? That's probably the primary dictation of if you're going to utilize a particular area. Now, your other individual issues about shape, size, orientation, huntability, you know, all those aspects that are like individualistic that help you define movement and allow you to kill, that's where you guys really do well. Because, you know, 
on this podcast, what we what I've learned from you is that you've come up with these kind of, I don't know, orchestrated movements because of the way you do the food layout, and it usually allows you to be more successful. Did you find anything this year with your layout that didn't work in a particular farm that you're like, oh, crap, you know, we should have done this totally different. And you're like, you know, maybe there needs to be some changes or maybe some evolution and thought when it comes to kind of food plot layouts. And anything that, that kind of popped up in your mind? Uh, <clears throat> we certainly had some standing grain fields, beans in particular, that we always wish we uh, put walking strips in to kind of lead the deer into bow range. And some of these spots are uh, our leases that we can't um, because we're just allowed to leave the grain that's there. Um, it's not a farm that's owned. So certainly in that standpoint, like if you plan a big grain field, and this is something that I wish we could do every year on some of these farms that we're not allowed to do anything except leave grain, which is great. I, I never knock leaving grain. If you can do it, do it. But if you're a big bow hunter, which we'd rather kill every deer on film with a bow than a gun, we certainly kill a few with a gun every year, but we'd rather kill them with those Matthews bows. But uh, if you can do it, leave a grain field, but then make walking strips, you know, take a tiller, till right to where you're going to be set up, whether it's in a tree stand or a, or a blind and, you know, make a turkey foot shape or a two track that leads the deer right to that ideal bow range for you. And uh, that's certainly one thing I wish we could do every year um, to your question is plant green walking strips within a standing grain field. Yeah, I think that's a great addition. And we talked about that previously on the podcast with the food plot layouts and setup. So if anybody hasn't listened to that, please do. But that de- description you just gave, I think, is, is ideal. And I think a lot of people miss out on that. All right. Yeah, and, and I mean – you can hunt those places so much more, um, through the season. You know, if you're a diehard bow hunter, but you've only got this grain field, your opportunity could be limited because the deer might come out at a distance. But if you put those walking strips in, you're not only going to gain a bow spot for yourself because they should become within bow range before than they would, you know, they should come sooner than they were before. And then also when it comes to gun season, you can still sit on that grain field in the same spot and shoot the whole thing. So it's just another tool to the tool chest. I'll I'll put my nose into this. Um, I like the idea where you're having these walking strips into a social area that we've talked before. You have, you know, some type of thing that they could social on, uh, socialize on with, whether it's a water hole or it's a scrape tree, licking branch, whatever you want to call it, and, and yes. kind of blow that up a little bit. So you've got strips into a bubble, and that bubble becomes kind of a social point uh, as much as is a food source. And I think, you know, kind of those layouts are ideal. Those are kind of how I set up a lot of my food plots, either on my own property or clients. So I wanted to add that into that. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about any other improvements or thoughts that you had. I know we talked a little bit about timber, is there areas or timber cuttings or anything that you're going to be doing this season that you think would be helpful for the users or listeners? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we sit down every year, um, myself, Mark and Wade and go through each farm, kind of break it down from a cover standpoint, a food standpoint, a blind, a tree stand standpoint. We pretty much cover everything. And, um, I certainly every year go to, we don't do like extensive TSI, Um, we kind of pocket it, if you will. Like if we have a food plot in a certain spot on a farm, 
and there's a, a nice south facing slope within two, 300 yards of that food plot, we'll go do a nice, um, call it a 50 by 50 yard area of TSI. And if it needs to be bigger, we make it bigger, but we don't just go through the woods and TSI our entire timber. Um, I think a lot of people get a little confused on that. Um, we like our timbers clean and nice, but we also like there to be a perfectly nice TSI spot and great bedding for deer, which also creates woody browse as well. And we always want those distances between the TSI area and the food plot to be, you know, within a regular amount and distance that they get there within daylight hours so that you have the opportunity to, to shoot them. Yeah. So all of those spots, I mean, I've created some TSI spots on how I would say almost every single one of our farms so far, but every year I kind of go in and look at it like, okay, is it doing well? Does it need more trees put down? Does it need more trees ring? So we get more sunlight in here. I kind of check on them every year and, uh, touch them up if you will. Or, you know, if we talk about a spot that we need to create another one, we go in and do that. But we're also diehard turkey hunters. So we like to shoot turkeys in the timber and we don't need all our trees on the ground, but we certainly, certainly have a lot of areas that are TSI and, and they're all set up in the exact, um, example that I just gave of the distances being where the cover is to the food to allow the deer to be there in daylight hours. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, do you consider it like a pulling resource, like a TSI area, essentially kind of like a pulling food resource from a bedding area? Would that be a way to describe it? Yeah. I consider it like, a you know, like, like the deer's homes here. And then the deer goes to the restaurant at the food plot. Like, you know, we create their home and then we create their, their buffet. And we put it at a distance that is reasonable for them to get up at daylight hours and make that, make that journey. And also in creating these areas and spots, you have to think about how you're accessing the food source, where you're hunting over, whether you have a tree stand off the edge of the field or you have a blind out there, you have to think about, okay, if I put the TSI here and the deer are all going to bed here eventually, where am I coming from to access my blind or stand? I have to make sure the wind's correct and they can't see me. So, Yeah, and I would say for anybody who's thinking through this and you're starting to do your layouts and kind of define like your zones of improvement, you're trying to like, again, I, this has been a multi, this is like my regime. This is my dogma on this, on this podcast is you're figuring out a purpose for each zone. And not every zone has to have multiple purposes. It could be a purpose strictly for bedding with the limited resources, limited food resources, or bedding and food if you have limited food on the landscape, again, depending on the terrain and things that we talked about earlier. And so defining the purpose behind those and kind of using some of the examples here that Perry's talking about of, you know, he's standing uh, he's standing in those areas uh, multiple years and seeing what maintenance or additional requirements do we have to reduce the, the canopy a little bit more to get a little more sunlight response. And uh, again, considering the aspect, right? It's a lot easier to grow certain resources depending on your aspect. And in this case, you know, in my area specifically, kind of a lot of those North 
eastern kind of slopes. Those are areas that I'm, I'm focused on kind of growing more of that woody material because the moisture level and content. Um, where grasses and more herbaceous material do a lot better depending uh, on their slope and aspect, we'll say in south regions, uh, et cetera, on your landscape. So there's some strategies beyond those, but then it's figuring out what those resources in those areas over time and then kind of giving them a value. And I think that's that's what he's talking about where he walks in and he starts to assess, you know, is it, I, I guess, good, better, best, something like that. And um, that's an okay metric to looking at food plots, TSI projects, you know, timber value, bedding areas, and just kind of using a metric going in and starting to make those decisions. Because I think, you know, the difference on this podcast is we're trying to get into the minutia and details of how we're doing layout and setup. So I think that's really important. Um, sorry, Perry had a rant. Um, no, you're, you're good, man. That was some good stuff in there for sure. Like, I mean, we've got plenty of food in the, in the environment that we live in, in the train we live in here in Iowa and Missouri, we have a lot of food. And I mean, I'm not going to say the deer don't love some woody brows some certain times of the year. They certainly do. But, uh, I mean, our TSI locations and, you know, where we create those hubs and those homes for them are certainly strictly for bedding as much as possible because we've got some wide open big timber that the deer, you know, everybody thinks the deer just lays around in the timber, I think, but they, they do not, you know, they seek out those South slopes from, you know, being warm in sunlight in the late season. They seek out that thermal cover for the cedars and they seek out the thicker areas to feel safe. in. you know, I always say, if your timber looks like a golf course timber, you don't, you're not going to have the great deer there. So, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's get in anything else that you want to talk about. Anything else on your mind, anything bothering you? I mean, you've got like this quota and I feel like the pressure for you right now that you got to like hit that quota. Um, you know, is there anything that's on your mind that you think is important for the listeners? Uh, I can't come up with a whole lot. I'm not too nervous about the quota. I've <laughs> been, been through it two years now. The first year I started here, I was like, we got to shoot how many does? Um, so, but, uh, no, everyone that's listening out there, I appreciate you listening and be safe. If you still got a tag in your pocket, get after it. You only got a few days left. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and good luck to you. And, uh, I don't, I don't know why I feel the pressure for you when, uh, you're, you're good to go. You're a killer and congratulations (laughs) on the hunting season this year, man. Great hunting season. I'm excited to talk more. I want to start getting into some of the details of of, of some of the real specific tactics that you guys are employing throughout the year and, um, you know, come to these projects, you know, kind of thinking through, you know, what trees we cut, why, how we're putting tops on the ground, how we're working with the existing timber, even some of the logging operations that go on on a daily basis, you know, thinking through all these steps and processes, I think is really important. And you guys always have projects going on because this is a daily thing for you and it's a daily thing for me. And I think people don't realize how much work goes into this type of career and job. So I appreciate all your input and support. Yeah. I mean, a, a big project right now is uh, our coyote numbers and our raccoon numbers are pretty insane just from a trail camera standpoint of seeing them. And, and so uh, Wade and I are getting after trapping and we're going to start hunting some coyotes here. I've got a new thermal setup and so does he. So 
we're going to uh, put those to work and hopefully reduce some some predators and and have some off season fun, if you will. Okay, good, good. Yeah, it never stops. Honey never stops. So, all right, bud, uh, that's it. We will check in with you soon, and uh, looking forward to talking again. Sounds good, man. Appreciate it. All right, Perry. See you, bud. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.